to see you again. There are some handouts on the uh, pew, if you would like them. And you may notice that it says February 11th rather than February 12th. That's because my cats and I get together for a devotional on the day before to practice and rehearse these things. And I just forgot to change the date before I brought it in today. So, so sorry about that. We want to pick up where we left off. We were talking about wisdom literature. And as you know, in this class, we're kind of tracing again the promise, seeing how the whole story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is all telling one story, and we want to see how the different parts and pieces fit together. And, in, and we're also tracing a seed. There was a promised seed in the book of Genesis that was going to come, and he was going to crush the head of the serpent. And of course, we know the end of the story, that that's looking forward to Jesus Christ. And we talked last week about the wisdom literature having a covenantal aspect to it. We looked at the beginning of Proverbs, the beginning of Psalms, and the beginning of Ecclesiastes, all talking about a king or a son of David or the king of Israel or ruling over Jerusalem. And so all of the wisdom literature in one way or another is pointing forward to Christ. And at the end of the class, we talked about Christ being our wisdom as well. It's in him uh, that we uh, find our wisdom. He is the one who is the wise man and we learn from and live and move in him. But in the wisdom literature in particular, it's inviting us to engage in the world around us. It doesn't have just simple propositions that always work out in the exact same way that we would think. It's not strict calculus. It's not geometry. It's calling us to, uh, to investigate, to explore, uh, to recognize the world around us. And we see um, after that seed was promised that there's two group of people. There was a, a war that was promised between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that can kind of be fleshed out, we said, as those who do what is right in their own eyes and those who call upon the name of the Lord. And for our purposes today, you can think of that as those who do what is right in their own eyes are foolish. Uh, their way is destruction. Their way is condemnation. And then those who call upon the name of the Lord are those who have faith. They fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. And they are the ones who have the, the path and the keys to life through the one who is wise. So even in the wisdom literature, we see this reality playing out. And as we talk about um, wisdom, last week we talked about it really being the art of living well. And I didn't remember, and I still can't find who the orig originally said that, but it's a really wonderful definition. And that uh, wisdom finds its way on everything it touches. People, art, policies, conversations, uh, everything. Everything wisdom touches uh, has... Uh, a beauty to it and a reality to it and a righteousness to it and a fitness to it. And we think about wisdom too. We wanted to say, first and foremost, we want to recognize that we live in once Eden. Uh, that's a phrase by Zach Eswine. I like it. It stuck with me. We don't live in the world that was created and we don't live in the world that will be consummated. We live in a sin-cursed world and it wasn't cursed by sin by default, it was by the Lord's doing. The Lord is the one who is in control and in the systems. He's the one who uh, cursed the serpent. He's the one who um, cursed the fallen angels. He's the one who uh, cursed the earth in that sense. Um, and so we recognize this wasn't just 
a cosmic chance or accident, that there's an intentionality, a purposefulness in that. And we're going to see partly what the purpose of that is today as we look at wisdom literature. But when we look around us, we can affirm wholeheartedly with the author of Ecclesiastes that life is absurd. There are a lot of crazy things that happen, right? We recognize that things that we would expect to happen or even what we know about God, that we wouldn't necessarily think uh, that this is the way that things ought to be, we agree. The way things will be in heaven are the way things they ultimately ought to be. All peace, all harmony, all love, all justice, all righteousness, no sin, no being sinned against, no living in a sin-cursed world anymore, no racism, no sexism, no inappropriate conversation. Like, it'll just be beautiful and holy. And so we recognize, hey, this really isn't the best of all possible worlds, and this isn't even really good uh, in that sense. It's cursed and it's fallen, but we know that also that this isn't all that there is, that there's something coming. And we look on the horizon for the return of the king. So today I said we were going to talk about Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And then next week, Dr. Horton is going to be here, and he's going to do a lesson on the fear of the Lord. He, most recently, he wrote a book on this uh, that was out last year. I recommend the book. It's called Sanity is the title. And then the subtitle is something about the fear of the Lord. Um, but uh, it's a really great book. He'll be here to be able to teach that whole class. I'm delighted in God's providence how that worked out. Because as we talk about wisdom today, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom so he can more fully just unpack that for us. But today, I wanted to take half of our time and talk about Proverbs and half talk about Ecclesiastes in a little bit more detail. So in terms of Proverbs... The, one of the key concepts that I want us to remember and to take away is that they're, to, they're intentionally trying to make you think and to ponder and to engage and to interact and to slow down and to contemplate. They're not just to be read. Like Most people don't sit down and read Proverbs all in one setting. <laughs> As a matter of fact, sometimes you just read one um, or two or a couple and you can meditate upon that all day. You could meditate upon that all your life. You could think about it as you go through. There's an intentionality about that. It's a huge pause button in the chaos of life and the craziness of life to just say, slow down. Consider X, Y, and Z. Consider the ant. Consider the fool. Consider the sluggard. Consider the wise man. And then when Jesus came, he used that same kind of language. He's the ultimate sage, right? Consider the lilies of the field. Consider the birds of the air. And not just kind of like in a passing thing, yeah, 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 I get the point. But actually, no, consider it. Consider the waves on the shore. Consider the sun. Consider the sunshine. Consider the foolishness of the world. You know, how can we live in a country of 250 million adults and not have anybody good to vote for for president, right? I mean, that's just absurd. It's crazy. And there's all kinds of things like that. How can churches that faithfully preach the gospel shrink and churches that preach a false gospel just be filled? You know, 50,000 people in a stadium. In one sense, right? Living in one's Eden, that's absurd. But that's also not all that there is or not all that's going on. Wisdom is telling us to pause and think a little bit more thoughtfully and fully about this, a little more fully orbed and a little more complex. So the Proverbs don't come to us as simple aphorisms or purely law or purely gospel, though they involve both, but they want us to engage in, in life. 
contemplation, investigation, conversation, revelation, both general revelation and specific revelation, meditation experience. There's all different kinds of ways that you learn and all different kinds of ways that we, we grow. And so Proverbs is inviting us in to any of these things, to investigate something, to contemplate something, to experience something, to consider something. And also the Proverbs are generally laid out in a if you do X, then Y will happen kind of pattern. And then Ecclesiastes will come along and say, yeah, that's generally true, but there's all these other situations, right? The whole book of Job unpacks that. It'll say, yes, that's true, but also this. So you can say in Proverbs, right, generally, if you work hard, you'll do all right, but not always. If you, they just think, like, if I take 10, here's a general truth, right, that you can glean from Ecclesia, or from Proverbs. If I take $10,000 to Vegas, is it more likely that I'm going to come away from there with a million dollars or with zero dollars? Zero. More likely. It's, is it possible I could go there and get lucky and win a million bucks? Sure. But wisdom would tell me, hmm. <laughs> These high-rises aren't built here because a whole bunch of people came and turned 10,000 into a million, right? It's foolish. It would be dumb of me to think, foolish of me to think that's what happens. Generally, that's not what happens. Overwhelmingly, that's not what happens. And so the way of wisdom would say, eh, avoid that. Think about that really cautiously before you engage in it. And then Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, all the wisdom literature, we could just have a big question mark, right? With a pen that works. Think. Ask a question. It's interesting that two books of the Bible actually end with questions. Jonah and Nahum. And Jesus was constantly asking questions. We so often want to give the answers to everything. I want us to contemplate better questions. Because sometimes the questions are more important than the answers. And think about all the questions that Jesus asked. It's doing exactly what we say in Proverbs. It's causing you to move in, to lean in and contemplate, investigate, consider, and act based on that. Jesus said, like, who do you think that I am? Who do you say that I am? What did you come out here? What did you come out to see? One of my favorite questions that Jesus asked was when these sick people came up to him and he said to them, do you want to be well? What an interesting question. What are the consequences of being well? Maybe I'm used to being sick. Maybe I like being sick. Maybe I don't want to have to deal with the reality of that. What a great question. It's more interesting than just an answer. Just, just healing them, he could have done. Or not doing anything or not saying anything. What an interesting question. And Jesus constantly asks questions. So don't read the Proverbs as fast as you can. Just think through them. And so today we want to consider the ant and consider the fool. By way of example, we could pick anything in Proverbs or anything in creation. But uh, Proverbs says, in Proverbs 26, 4, it says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And then the sec next verse says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Right? So this could seem like a contradiction, but it's not. 
It's inviting you in to consider, hey, there's a time when you really need to avoid a fool. And there's a time where you really need to engage a fool. And how do you know that? Wisdom? (laughs) Engaging in it, thinking about it, experience. There's going to be times when you look back and you say, you know, it was, I shouldn't have done that. I should have waited. It was the wrong time and the wrong place. And other times you're going to recognize, oh, that that was good. That worked out well. And you can't always base it on the outcome. You could be wise in responding to a fool and they not respond well. Because we know from Proverbs that fools don't always like reproof. They don't always like correction. So they may not say, oh, thank you for correcting me. I really appreciate it. How often do we do that, right? So we can't always gauge whether it was wise or not based on the response or the outcome. And then be teachable. At least 87 times in Proverbs, it says wisdom comes through hearing. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Write this. The fool is right in their own eyes. And nobody likes to know it all. How many times do you talk to someone, they know everything about everything? You just don't like to be around these people. The wise person is humble. They're teachable. They recognize the sheer tonnage of what they don't know far outweighs anything that they do know. Most of us really only know a little bit about a few things. And some of us know a thimbleful about a whole bunch of stuff. But we act like we have to know it all. We even feel like we have to be able to give an answer or a response for everything we don't. It's okay to say, I don't know, or that's really interesting, or let me think about it, or can I get back to you, or what have you. It's okay. There's a lot of freedom in that. And so let's consider the ant. In Proverbs 6, 6 through 11, it says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways. Right? So it's inviting us in to do this and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? Another question. When will you arise from your sleep? Another question. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. That's a great little passage. Now think about that. Right? Don't move on to the next text. To think about, consider the ant, consider the sluggard. One theologian said the ant shames the sluggard twice over. First, because the ant does not need an overseer telling her what to do. The ant just does it. And second, the ant can discern the times and make wise choices. They do things. They plan ahead. And so note that the sluggard or will not begin things. It says, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. In other words, for the sluggard, it's always tomorrow or later. I'll do that later. I'll get to it. And if you keep on saying tomorrow or later, tomorrow or later never really come. And generally what you can expect from that is poverty or ruin or unhealth or fractured relationships or all kinds of things upon, that come from the sluggard. You need to begin things. 
Wayne Gretzky, one of the arguably the greatest hockey player of all time and the leading scorer in the NHL, said one time that he never made a shot that he didn't take. Which is simple but true, right? You can't, take, you can't make the shot if you don't take the shot. He missed far more shots than he made, but he's the NHL's leading scorer because he made a heck of a lot of them. And he took them. You have to take the shot. You have to go for it. And I'm not just saying go for everything, right? I'm not saying take the 10,000 and go to Vegas and you're going to turn it into a million. Take the smart shot. Go for it. Live life. You're free. Go for it. But the sluggard won't begin things. We also find out that he won't finish things. And Proverbs 19.24 says, The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. What a great image. The sluggard buries his hand in his dish and he won't even bring it back to his mouth. He's going to die because he's not going to make the effort to go from here to here to feed himself. Oh, the humanity of that kind of work and effort. They're just going to die. He won't finish things. You can think about it in the paradigm of like ready, aim, and fire. Some people are fire and they didn't really get ready and they really didn't aim and that can cause a lot of destruction and then there are people like me that are ready aim 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 fire and other people are ready aim fire I mean just think about how you can combine those words and switch them around in the order on how things work if you fire before you have ready and aim, you're going to do a lot of damage. If you're just constantly ready, but you never aim, or if you aim, but you never fire, you know, things are going to happen. There are consequences in life for doing or not doing these things, for being inert, for not beginning things or not finishing things. And then we also find out that the sluggard will not face things. He doesn't face the reality of living in once Eden. He constantly makes excuses. Proverbs 22:13 says, The sluggard says, There is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets when there is no lion. <laughs> he's so afraid of everything, or he so wants to not do something that he won't engage. He has an imaginary lion that's keeping him from doing things. And it's really just him. He has rational lies. He tells himself, Oh, there's a lion out there, but there is no lion. And so he believes that and he acts upon that. The wise man actually is to learn from the sluggard and become wiser. We're to watch and investigate all these things. That's just one example in the time that we have of just looking at one small passage of things that you can glean from looking at the ant and the, the sluggard. But Proverbs goes through all kinds of these. I would encourage you to take the time and read a couple and think about them and talk about them, dialogue, investigate, consider what are the ramifications of this? How does this play out? Think of it in movies, think of it in literature, think of it in your life. It helps flesh it out and then it helps us to be more thoughtfully engaged in the world in which we live. Does that make sense? And then Ecclesiastes. The key to Ecclesiastes, as we said, is to recognize that phrase, under the sun. And so from the beginning of Ecclesiastes to the end of Ecclesiastes, I told you last week, my opinion is that it's orthodox through and through. There are many Christians who believe that 
the first couple verses and the last five verses are orthodox and then everything else is the ramblings of a madman. I think the whole thing can be and really ought to be on the lips of saints of all ages. This is absurd. And I submitted to you that Jesus Christ, who's the preacher, the son of David, the king of Israel, could have that on his lips. Right here he is, the perfect one, being mocked, being abused, being mistreated, being denied, being crucified. That's absurd. But that was actually used for our good. It wasn't random. It wasn't meaningless. It's absurd. There's a difference. And the Lord is using the absurdity for our good and recognizing the absurdity of it all. And so Ecclesiastes wants to dialogue with the things that we said in Proverbs or the things that we see in the law and say, ah, but not so fast. It doesn't always work out like that. I could go win that million dollars. Probably not, but I could. So it'll say, yes, that's generally true, but also this. And then it really traffics in some of the complexities of life. And so I want to look at three things in particular, the limits of time, the author of time, and the purpose of time. Turn to Ecclesiastes 3, if you would. In Ecclesiastes 3, um, hear this, the word of the Lord, the wise one, 3, 1 through 15, says for everything, listen to the, the wisdom of this, listen to the beauty of this, listen to the invitation of this, listen to the fact that there's no one right way to understand this, it's inviting you to contemplate it and experience it. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, right? Again, this is the key, under the sun or under heaven. This is the reality of living in the sin-cursed world, not in creation as it was, not in the new heavens and the new earth, in this. A time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace." What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been and that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. 
That's a really wonderful passage to contemplate upon. And I submit to you in the life of our church here that this past year has had many joys and it's had many sorrows. It's had many ordinary days and many special moments. And I submit to you that until the Lord tarries, that's what's going to happen. We're going to have joys and we're going to have sorrows. We're going to have ups and downs. There's going to be love. There's going to be hate. There's going to be wars. There's going to be peace. There's going to be all these things in once Eden and under heaven until the king returns. And so this poem is really given to us to think about, first of all, the limits of time. Verse 1 is really a summary or a thesis statement. Ponder, consider this. For everything, there is a season. For every matter under heaven, the ebb and flow of life, the warp and woof of life, God's providential oversight over all things that we don't have access to. And then there's this poem that's really descriptive. It's not prescriptive. The author is a keen observer of life. He's a keen thinker. He's a keen experiencer. What's interesting about this poem is that you've probably heard it read at either a wedding or a funeral. How many things could be read at both? There's some real wisdom in that. If you can read something at a wedding and it's appropriate and at a funeral and it's appropriate to think about, there's some wisdom in that. As someone who gets living in once Eden and managing your expectations about what to anticipate in this life and to live not only for this life but also the next. The poem recognizes the limits and the boundaries and the parameters of life, but within those boundaries and parameters it's saying live, work, eat, drink, be happy, do the things that you can. And so it talks about there's a beginning and an end of life and everything in between. There's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck, a time to kill and a time to heal. All those things in once Eden. There's a time for this and a rightness. It talks about our private life. There's a time for weeping and a time of laughing. And I'm sure we've all had both this past year. And we're all going to have both this next year. It's not like, oh, if you figure this out, it will all only be laughter. Or your life is doomed. You're only going to be tears until the Lord returns. Life's more complex than that. Life's different than that. It ebbs and flows. And how often are you not in control of those things when you weep and when you laugh? They're often things that happen. They're occasions. I often feel like that Jiffy Lube balloon. You know, that's like... <sighs> you know, that like in, in any day or even in a couple moments, I could be really glad about something and then get a phone call and like... <sighs> that's how life works out. A time for both. A time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a public life, too. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. This church celebra celebrated a wedding this year. This church mourned funerals this year. We corporately, as people who are in communion and share relationship with one another, we were delighted to participate in a wedding. What a joy. And the dancing was great at that. Some of you are very good dancers. And we mourned. We buried some dear friends. And that's a loss. There's also ambition. There's a time to seek and go for something and a time to say, enough. There's a time to speak and a time to be silent. There's relationships. There's a time to love and hate. 
We're uncomfortable with the language of hate, but God hates things. We can hate the things God hates. Injustice. Lying lips. Adultery. Racism. Sexism. All the things that the Lord hates, we can hate as well. And so that poem can either be maddening or delightful. (laughs) And I submit to you that sometimes in my life, depending on what I'm going through, if I read or think about that, I'm like, oh, that's really comforting. Other times I'm like, that's frustrating. That's what it's calling you to do. It wants you to engage and to think about it like that. So we recognize that there are limits to time. The second thing we want to recognize is the author of time. In verse 9, it says, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen that who has given to... I have seen that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. In other words, beloved, God is the one who's in control of time, not time. Sometimes we personify time as if time is in control and that time is a tyrant. And it feels like that at times. Or time's a wicked taskmaster. But it's God who's in control of time. Not a hair can fall from your head without the will of your Father. Mm, I wish you would do things different. I wish you would do it in a different time or a different way. Fair enough to pray to him about. Fair enough to talk about. Fair enough to contemplate. But what we don't want you to do is to slip into, well, it's random or it's chaotic or it's out of control or time's in control. Uh Uh-uh, beloved. God, your Father, is in control. Contemplate that. This is what the wise man, the orthodox preacher says. What gain has the worker from his toil? How many of you think, I'm sick of working for the man. What gain is the worker from his toil? I have seen that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in his time. To recognize that God is in control of time fosters both humility and hope. I'm not in control, ultimately he is. And also hope because we're not believing in randomness or chaos or time itself, but in the God of time. And we can recognize the frustration with it, right? Also, we want to recognize that God's control of time is beautiful, it says. There's a rightness to it and a fitness to it. We recognize that we're living between the tick of Christ's first coming and the talk of his second coming. And then in his time, the Lord will return. In his time, the Lord came. Galatians says, in the fullness of time, born unto a woman. God's in control of this. The author will go on to say, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. This is again why I think it's orthodox through and through. He's recognizing this is a gift. The things that you do in this life are a gift from God. Your abilities, your relationships, the opportunity to enjoy good food and good drink and good conversation and to make a living and to own a own business or to be an artist or to be a singer or to be a craftsman, to travel around the world, to go and th- those are all wonderful gifts that God has given. Enjoy them. But we recognize that they're not ultimate. 
Usually we really enjoy a trip and then we come home and we're back to our life and we wish we could be on the trip. Well, the trip doesn't last forever. The trip is for a season. There's a time for it, a season for it. Okay. But I want to be on the trip all the time. Okay. Glory's coming. Hang in there. Wait a little while longer. So when he says this, to be joyful and to do good and to eat and to drink, the author is not a hedonist. He's not a fatalist. He's not saying eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow that we die. He's saying though life is absurd and filled with troubles, that's not all that there is. This life isn't all that there is. That meal, that dance, that fractured relationship, that's not all that there is. It's important. Engage in it. Realize it. Express any angst, any fears, any hopes, any joys that you have about it. But recognize it's not ultimate. That's not all that there is. It gets so easy for us to catastrophize everything. This is it. This is the only thing. It's just a piece. It's an important piece. And there are bigger and smaller pieces. But it's just a piece. It says God has also, or God has also given us relative and temporal pleasures. These are gifts from God. They're not gifts of time. They're not gifts of other gods. They're not accidents. They're not random occurrences. They're gifts of God. The good meals that you enjoy, the good movies that you enjoy, the good books that you read, the beautiful walks that you take down by the beach, the days out surfing, the days when you go scuba diving and come across a whale shark. Those are gifts. They're lovely. In that movie, in the um, Lord of the Rings, Frodo and Gandalf have a conversation one time. And Frodo said, I wish it need not have happened in my time. Like everything that's going on with Mordor and the war. He said, I wish that it wouldn't have happened in my time. And Gandalf said, so do I. And so do all who live in such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that's given to us. You can be really frustrated about once eaten and all the things that you see. Just open up your newspaper. You know, murders, um, the uh, earthquake in Turkey, the economy, elections, racism. I wish it wouldn't have been that I wouldn't have lived in this time. And Gandalf says, so do all who live in such times. But that's not for us to decide. All we have to do is say, what are we going to do with the time that's given to us? What about the opportunities that the Lord has given to us? And then finally, we were, talked about the limits of time, the author of time, the purpose of time. And this is pretty radical. Look at verse 11. This is another reason why I think this is orthodox through and through. It says, God has placed eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has put eternity into our hearts. We know by God's design that the world is absurd. We know by God's design that this world isn't all that there is. We know by God's design 
that we have a longing for things to be put right. We long for beauty. We long for truth. We long for justice in their purest form. And that doesn't come because we're so wonderful and wise and figured it out on our own. It's because the one who is all of those things put it within you. You long for that. You hunger for that. And so you recognize when it's not there. And so it's creating in us a desire for something. It's creating in a desire for one outside of ourselves. It's also designed in such a way that the temporal never fully satisfies. Our education may be really worthwhile, but it never fully satisfies or it doesn't satisfy eternally. Our marriages and relationships, as beautiful as some of them are, are really wonderful, but they're pointing forward to something else. There's always the law of diminishing returns, right? You have one piece of... Sorry, let me... I tried to put that on silent mode. It's absurd that I'm 57 years old and have no idea how to work my phone. (laughs) Um, The law of diminishing returns, right? Sometimes the more you have of something, the less satisfying it is. That first piece of pie is good. The second piece of pie, okay. The third one, you're going to start to get sick. And the fourth one and the fifth one. The pie didn't change. More of something isn't always good. Sometimes there's a rightness or a fitness, all things in moderation to it. Eternity is in the hearts because there's something more grand than us. There's a meta-narrative. Life is shot through with meaning. Like Some people read Ecclesiastes and think life is meaningless. He said it's absurd, not that it's meaningless. If life was truly meaningless, C.S. Lewis said, you'd never be able to figure that out. There has to be meaning in order for you to sense its loss. And what the author of Ecclesiastes has said is God has put eternity in your hearts so that there's this longing. (sighs) There's got to be something more beautiful and something more holy and something more grand and something more awesome. All of these things are great, but there's got to be something else. And that longing of this seems meaningless You couldn't possibly feel that if there wasn't meaning. There is meaning. Our lives are shot through with meaning. And so the point of this is that eternity is put in our hearts to point us to the one who is eternal. The eternal son of God, who is the promised seed, who comes down and enters into the absurdity of it all. What could be more absurd than the son of God hanging on a Roman cross crucified? But the text said, God makes all things beautiful in his time, right? That's an ugly scene. But you know what? That's really beautiful because it's in that moment that all of our sins, all of our foolishness, all of our folly was being paid for by the one who is eternal, bearing the weight of what should be our eternal punishment on himself, having lived a life of perfect righteousness in our stead. In a perfect time, And so God has put these things, eternity, in our hearts so that we don't ultimately find our eternal pleasure 
in temporal things or be deceived by them thinking they are eternal, but recognizing every good and perfect gift is from the Father. Everything that we have materially and everything that we have spiritually comes from the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit. And so we can enjoy them and we should enjoy them and we should love them in, in their context. But they're ultimately, there's this, we want to thank the giver more so than the gift. We want to recognize and enjoy the giver and worship him, not the gift itself. But there's something in there that beats in us that says, that barbaric, when, how long, O Lord? It's because eternity has been put in our hearts and we know that there's a reckoning. We know that there's a day coming and we know who's coming because scripture has made it really clear. The son of God has come He has suffered, he has died, he has risen again, he's ruling and reigning, and he's coming again. And we live in once Eden, between the tick of his first coming and the talk of his second coming. And our hearts are geared towards eternity. We're looking on the horizon for the return of the king. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to engage in life and to contemplate and to think and to meditate and to ask questions We thank you for the gritty reality of scripture and not telling us or deceiving us into thinking that this is the best of all possible worlds or this is all that there is, but being real, that we recognize that we live in once Eden, we live in a sin-cursed world. And there's some real beauty and there's some real lovely things here, but they're not ultimate and they're not eternal and that you have given them to us to enjoy and also to point us to the one who is eternal. And Father, could we live and move and serve in light of the reality that we are not our own, but that we belong to you through Jesus Christ and are indwelt by your eternal and Holy Spirit who's conforming us ever more and more to his image. In Jesus' name, amen.